You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 139 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Carla Godwin and Katie Grubbs. Hello, Carla and Katie. Hi. Hey. Uh, Before we get started with our conversation today, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that might be new to our program. Uh, Katie, why don't you go first? Hi, I am Katie Norman Grubbs, and I live in Sugar Land, Texas. I'm adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, where I teach in the online program and also design online courses from time to time. And uh, I live here in Sugar Land with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. Um, at the moment, I am having a great time teaching a course on Esther at our church for ladies on Tuesday mornings. Wonderful. Uh, Carla, how about you? Hey, I'm Carla Godwin, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota with my two daughters. Um, I am an operations manager at a family foundation here and have been involved in um, progressive faith organizing for several years. Um, And I currently like I have a brand new COVID kitten. So (laughs) and he is in the area with me. So I'm going to pre apologize for any like kitten noises that come in (laughs) because he's just sort of traipsing around and I don't have a door to shut him out. So that is my disclaimer for any background noise. Adorable background noises, duly noted. Um, Well, I am Alexis Neal. I live in southwestern Missouri with my husband, Coyle, of the City of Man podcast, the Christian Humanist Radio Network's political podcast, um, and our two sons. Um, most of my time now as we're getting finishing up with the holiday break and getting back in earnest to our normal schedule um, is that I hope spend my time homeschooling um, those two. Well, kind of one of them is four. So that's not a super it's it's a challenge in its own way, but it's not like the curriculum part. That's the challenge when they're four. Um, so we're we're enjoying that. Um, and then also I am a member of my uh, of the city council in my small town. So um, that that keeps me uh, engaged in sort of more grown up conversation uh, levels. And then, of course, being married to a political scientist in the current climate um, is is certainly plenty to to keep my mind busy as well. So um, so that's me. Um, Now, moving on, our our first segment segment today, as always, is knowing Um, I should say today we're going to be talking about our, our topic of discussion is the Enneagram. Um, and uh, I would imagine that most or at least many of our listeners are familiar at least with, with that word. But we did want to to go ahead and provide a little bit of a, of a primer before we go and, and jump off into our discussion. So um, just in case people are not familiar or just want a little more information, Carla, can you give us a little bit of uh, background on the Enneagram? 
Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so I will start with the word. The word stems from Greek words, enia, which is nine, and gramos, or gramos, um, which is a written symbol. And it actually, there, there's a symbol that represents the enneagram that is a circle with nine equidistant um, points on it, and then lines that connect those points um, in various patterns throughout. So it kind of looks like a nine-point star. So that's what that um, term is referring to. Um, and the Enneagram symbol represents nine distinct strategies for relating to the self, to others, and to the world. These strategies can also be understood, of course, as personality types. Each Enneagram type has a different pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that arises from a deeper inner, inner motivation or worldview. The nine types connected within the one shape implies that we are all connected. Though we are driven by different motivations, we share common experiences and have common needs. The Enneagram Institute teaches that that everyone emerges from childhood with one of the nine types dominating their personality, with inborn temperament and prenatal factors being the main determinants of our type. This is one area where most of the major Enneagram authors agree that we are actually born with a dominant type, which is interesting. Subsequently to this inborn orientation, um, subsequently this inborn orientation largely determines the ways in which we learn to adapt to our early childhood environment. So I want to rephrase that a little bit. Um, I'm pulling some of this from the Enneagram Institute, and so um, so it's a little bit academic in its speak. So I'm going to just rephrase. But it, basically, what they're saying is we bring with us at our birth certain perceptions and messages in that are already that are already there, right? Um, and those messages actually shape our experiences as much as our experiences shape us. So if we come with um, uh, I'm a four, so I'll use that. If we come with a four message that I have to be unique to be accepted, then we're kind of predisposed to watch for places where we are not being accepted, where we don't have belonging. So in our childhood messages, that thing is always at play. The thing we carry inside us and the thing outside of us are, and the things that are happening outside of us are kind of always in conversation with each other and, and serve as a way, as a shaping of our experience. Um, but this this also seems to lead to certain like unconscious orientations toward parental figures. And and so we don't always know, like because those things are an internal and external thing that, that develop in our very early childhood and from birth, they often are sort of set before we're even able to see ourselves as a separate conscious self. So they're very unconscious. Um, and and that that can be the trick of the Enneagram is actually trying to understand um, the things that we can almost not see about ourselves. You know, I think that we often interact with people and we and like it, I have felt this before that everyone around me can probably see the thing that I do and they all know it's a thing that I do, but I don't know it's a thing that I do. <laughs> and I feel like that's the thing that the Enneagram is trying to help us be able to see, to pull back enough from our unconscious patterns and motivations so that we can see it and be choiceful about it. Um, the one th and that's one thing that I think distinguishes the Enneagram from other personality types is its focus on the motivation behind the behavior. It's, it's not so much focused on what your behaviors are as what motivates you to do the behavior. So types can exhibit the same behavior while acting out of entirely different motivations. Um, because these motivations are derived from some combination of our inborn personality and our response to our childhood environment, um, like I said, they develop before we can actually even understand them as part of our separate selves. Um, so I think that that, to me, is is one of the things that that makes the Enneagram, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go through, but makes the Enneagram something that um, people who are interested in spirit and, and, and in the idea of a soul are drawn to, because it actually tries to get at the thing under the thing, the thing under our behavior. 
So I'm going to real quick just list through the nine types. Each type has a word that's sort of the shorthand for it and then a, like a phrase or a sentence that kind of tries to describe it. So I'm going to do those real quick. Um, and then there are a couple of other things to hit that'll give us sort of an overall look at what the Enneagram does. So starting at type one, type one is the reformer. They are rational, idealistic, principled, purposeful, self-controlled and perfectionistic. Type two is the helper. They are caring and interpersonal, demonstrative, generous, people-pleasing and possessive. Um, type three is the achiever. They're success-oriented, pragmatic, adaptive, excelling, driven and image conscious. Type four is the individualist. They're sensitive and withdrawn, expressive, dramatic, self-absorbed, and temperamental. Type five is the investigator, the intense cerebral type, perceptive, innovative, secretive, and isolated. The six is the loyalist. They're committed and security-oriented. They're engaging, responsible, anxious, and suspicious. The seven is the enthusiast. The busy, fun-loving type, spontaneous, versatile, distractible, and scattered. The eight is the challenger. They're powerful, dominant, self-confident, decisive, willful, and confrontational. Type nine is the peacemaker, the easygoing, self-effacing type, receptive, reassuring, agreeable, and complacent. So that's, of course, I mean, absolutely oversimplified description of each type. Um, there are a couple of other things about the Enneagram that I want to note um, because it can seem like I said, oversimplified, if you just look at nine types and go, how can there only be nine types of people in the world? Well, it gets a little more complicated when you start to look at the at the way that these types interact. Um, so they're also divided into um, three centers. And so eight, nine and one are considered the the body center. And there and um, there's also a, a, a distinct or dominant emotion that goes with each center. So like I said, eight, nine, one are the gut center and their dominant emotion is anger. Two, three, four are the heart or the feeling center, and their dominant emotion is shame. Five, six, seven is the head or the thinking center, and that their their dominant emotion is fear. Um, and then within your type, so if I'm a four, you actually also can have a wing. So on either, the number on either side of you, you can sort of lean toward. I heard people talk about it as handedness. You're kind of either five. If I'm a four, I'm either five handed or three handed. And that's the thing that I tend to use more often. Um, so that complicates your type a little bit, depending on which way you lean. Um, the other thing that is um, important to note is that there, there are for each number, there's um, a direction of disintegration and a direction of integration. And so from each number, there are arrows that point in two directions. Um, and the, the point of, of disintegration is the place where you go in stress. You go to sort of the negative or the, the stressed aspects of that number. When you are stressed, you take on some of those qualities. And your point of integration is where when you're in a time of strength, you go toward that number and are able to kind of hold on to or emulate some of the qualities of that type that are strengths. So those are ways to complicate all the things. Um, I want to just name sources for the things I just talked about. Uh, the Enneagram Institute is one. And then there's another website called EnneagramWorldwide.com that uses um, a narrative approach to Enneagram. So those are the two sources. That is a really, really quick <laughs> primer for what the Enneagram is. 
Thanks, Carla. I know that's a lot to try and, and distill down into a, a short explanation as there are whole volumes that have been written on, on this subject. So I appreciate you doing that for us. Um, well, before we move into our reading today, I do want to kind of go around and everybody have a chance to share a little bit about their personal experience with their exposure to the Enneagram, um, level of familiarity with it. And then if you know your type, uh, you can share what that, that type is. Um, so, yeah, well, we'll go ahead and do that. Um, Carla, since you just talked to us about that, can you tell us a little bit about your um, your level of familiarity with it um, and personal experience? And then you've already said, I guess, your, your type uh, four. Yeah. Yep. So, um, goodness, prior to the, I guess in the last year, my professional life has shifted pretty dramatically. But for the five years prior to that, um, I was doing uh, a lot of progressive faith organizing with progressive uh, post-evangelical churches around the country um, and just working with pastors on on um, creating community between them because there are all these sort of isolated post-evangelical progressive churches around the country and they didn't really they weren't really able to see each other. So part of the work that I did was to work with the open network to bring those those uh, pastors and churches together so that they could see each other and spend time together um, and support each other. So in doing that, Enneagram was sort of an inevitable, inevitable thing to stumble across. Um, we worked directly with Richard Rohr sometimes, and he actually is quite a proponent proponent of the Enneagram. And so um, conversations were constant as to like, um, who's what type and how does this express and how is this, um, how is your type impacting your experience as a, as a pastor, as a person, as, you know, all of that. So, so I've been exposed to it for quite some time. I actually have really struggled to find my number, <laughs> to, to relate to my number, um, and identified it as a, as a nine for most of the time that I was in that world. I, I felt a real sense of having, um, desired invisibility. Um, and that is how I sort of identified myself as a nine. Um, and lots of people kind of question that when I would say it. Um, and I, I do think that my impulse toward invisibility was more a gendered thing in, in my upbringing than it was a personality type. Um, so I just lately in my, uh, completely secular <laughs> operations manager job, um, hosted a staff retreat and we did Enneagram work for that. And I tested as a four and my colleagues were like, oh, obviously. And it was a fascinating thing for me to like look at why it had taken me so long to get to four. And I think that the four's central emotion of shame actually was a big part of that. Um, so that's, uh, that's my familiarity. Spent lots of time with it. I have certain skepticisms about it. Sometimes it really bothers me, and sometimes I find it quite quite useful. So, I think that's true of any number of things. So it makes sense that it would be true of the Enneagram. Um, yeah, I sort of similar. Um, I just sort of bumped into it, as I think a lot of us may have uh, in the in the evangelical or, or just even in the the wider world. Um, I started hearing people talking about it either through social media or through um, um, I lead a women's Bible study. Um, and m many of us, it's not a specific age range, but a lot of us are moms of younger kids um, in sort of similar life stages and age ranges. And I started hearing about it a lot and was curious um, and, you know, mildly narcissistic. So I went and tried to figure out what my my type was. Um, I'm pretty convinced that I'm a type one. I don't think there's any um, I haven't really had anything else show up as remotely close Um so I think that's my type, but I don't have any idea what, what wing I have if I have a wing. Um, and, um, I'm not, I don't use it. I don't, I don't use it as a way to, um, to think 
explicitly about my relationships with other people. I just wanted to have enough of a knowledge of it that I could sort of understand the language and maybe understand what other people were talking about when they talk about it. Um, but I don't have super strong feelings about it uh, one way or the other, other than being fascinated by it as a sort of cultural phenomenon um, in the church and among women. So hence hence this episode. Katie, uh, what is your personal experience with the Enneagram and do you know your type? So I first encountered it in, I think it was 2015, because it was the year we moved to Texas. Um, David and I had, it's actually funny, David and I were headed to, on a weekend trip to go see Michael Victoria um, in Omaha. We were going to meet them there from Kansas, because we were still living in Kansas. And my friend, one of my friends in Kansas, she was like, oh, you should read this book. It's really good. And gave me a book about the Enneagram. And I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I can read it all out to David in the car or whatever, you know. And at the time, I remember being very annoyed by it because that book didn't have any kind of a, a quiz or test. It was just like, here's the types. <laughs> Self-diagnose yourself. And I remember being frustrated and thinking, and also at that time when I read through the types, I thought, none of these sound like me. And so I kind of was just like, whatever, this is kind of strange. And um, I kind of wrote it off because at that point I hadn't started hearing about it very much in the larger culture. Um, and so I was like, this is a weird book that my friend has given me. Well, so then maybe a year ago, I started to hear it all over the place. Um, so many people were posting about it. And so I kind of looked it up again and realized that online there are quizzes you can take to try to you know, figure out which one. Um, also around the, that was maybe around the first time that I saw anybody post a little meme or any kind of a description of any of the types that I thought actually sounded like me. Um, and so I kind of diagnosed myself and then I took the test, um, one of the tests and it, the test said what I thought when I read it again, a couple years, you know, after a couple years passed, which is that I am apparently type eight, which is a fair cop. Um, I think that that is a pretty is pretty descriptive of me. Um, so, though, interesting. I've seen I know you said you said uh, Challenger, Carla, and that's the one I saw. I've all uh, but I was looking at something else the other day and I also saw type eight called Protector. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which which sounds nicer. <laughs> I think I think both of them. I think both of those words do fit me. But I thought that was kind of interesting that sometimes it's it's maybe not always this, the same word. Um and I don't know that I, I like you said, Alex, I don't I don't know wings. I don't I don't know what any of that stuff. I haven't done a ton of reading about it. Um, but I think that um, and it's and even even when you were talking, Carla, about like the dominant emotion or whatever, I hadn't heard any of that. And when you said eight, nine and one and you said um, anger, my first thought was, well, I'm not angry all the time. And then I heard the other two. I heard shame and fear. And I thought, oh, you know what? No. Yeah. I default to anger way faster than shame or fear. <laughs> so. Um, if, if, if I'm like pushed, I'm going to anger first. Um, so I, you know, maybe that's also pretty accurate. Um, I do think it can be, and I, I think it, you know, it's kind of useful. I, um, just, it's funny that you guys were talking about Myers-Briggs and how it's been kind of discredited over the years, because I always loved knowing my Myers-Briggs type, like since college, um, because I felt like it really, really expressed me really, really well. Um, but I, I'd also think with all of these different kind of personality things, there's a degree of kind of self, I mean, self-diagnosis, but also just like, depending on whether you're not, like you said, Carly, you didn't, you know, if you, if you like your type or not, or if you feel like you, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, whenever I, like if I took Myers-Briggs or when I, you know, learned my Enneagram type, I liked the ones that were there. Like, I felt like they described me, but also I was okay with how they described me. I felt like I was comfortable being identified by those words that, you know, those ideas. Um, and so I never had a reason to doubt it because I like the way it sounded. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Um, so my, my one beef with that, though, is that sometimes Myers, my Myers-Briggs type is called the dictator, which does not sound pleasant. And in any list um, of, like, famous people who have – it's ENTJ is my Myers-Briggs type. Half of them are, like, dictators, like, actual dictators. Like <laughs> My daughter is an ENTJ, and, yeah, I, yeah like, she's also an eight. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and, and that's the other thing that's kind of fun to me too, having found out my Enneagram type is to go, okay, what similarities does it have (laughs) to Mm -hmm. other, to other types of ways of identifying people? Um, And, you know, I, I just, I guess I have to tell myself that I use my powers for good instead of evil, or at least I hope I do um, given my personality type. Yeah. I, can I just jump in? I, I'm, but I, I think that's where the protector word actually, it really does apply to, to eights. And, and it is that your the anger piece actually stirs up when someone is, when there's a power dynamic that someone is the underdog in. So an eight gets very protective of an underdog and anger kicks up and they want to start to fix the power structure. So they'll challenge power structures and often are motivated to do it by anger over an underdog being mistreated. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Well, you know, and I think and, and I, I not even um, or any time like, you know, if something's going on at work and David's like, man, this is really frustrating. I immediately have about 19 ideas about how it could be better. And, you know, and one, I start pushing, pushing, pushing back, you know, um, and he's much more laid back than I am. So he, you know, he just kind of takes all that in and then he does what he was going to do anyway at work because that's his business. You know, it's none of my business how things function um, at his job. But yeah, anyway, so I, I do think I do think my type is accurate, um, but I did very much appreciate when I re-encountered it after a few years they're actually having a test available to see because I didn't see myself in eight or in any of the types really when I first read about it but that could have just been the book that I was reading um didn't explain it as clearly or something like that to be honest I don't remember what the book was or I would tell you guys I don't have the book it was because it was a friend I had to give it back to her so Carla correct me if I'm wrong but I've seen some of the stuff written about Enneagram specifically cautioning against reliance on tests and saying that it's supposed to be like worked out with a Enneagram coach as opposed to with a test. Is that what you've seen too? Or did I just stumble across someone who was trying to sell their coaching services? <laughs> I love that. Um, no, it, it actually, there. I mean, a test, what I've heard about the testing is that it can point you in a direction. And there are some tests that will, that will give you like your top three and won't narrow it so that you can then explore those top three. Do you know what I mean? Because it really is the goal of Enneagram is for you to self-identify, not for anyone external to you to identify. It's sort of like rule number one of the Enneagram is you don't get to pick someone else's Enneagram number. You don't get to say, oh, I think you're a, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, because it's supposed to be something that someone self-identifies with, in part because it is so motivational, motivationally oriented. So no one can know your motivations for the things that you do beside your, besides yourself. That said, we we like... I don't know, diagnose each other all the time with it. Um, But yes, ideally, the test is supposed to point you in a direction. And then you're supposed to, through reading a book or through reading the types, you're supposed to self-identify. Of course, a coach could be an assistant, you know, could assist in that. But yeah. Okay. Which is interesting. It ties into one of the things we'll talk about later, which is the habit of, and people do this with Myers-Briggs, I think, as as you mentioned, Katie, but, um, but the like, famous historical figures who were these types, which always bothered me because if, if it's all about, you know, what was driving them, what their deeper motivations were, you know, I don't, I don't know that we have a lot about some of these historical figures and, and what was their, you know, their, their message that they'd absorbed or their fear or their whatever. Um, so it's interesting that you say that because sometimes some of the materials will, will still say, here are all these famous type, you know, people who were each type, um, and I, I don't know what the basis is for that, but I'm always very skeptical of that because it, it's we just do not have access to 
um, to their internal processes. Um, For sure. I, I think that I think that that's super true. And I think it's interesting how we actually do start to externalize those motivations and look for ways that they show up. I was just reading a site to get ready for tonight that actually started talking about like physical attributes of a four that can help you understand that they're a four, like how often they look away from you while you're talking. And I was like, what? <laughs> that's bizarre. Wow. So I don't know. I, it, I, there are a lot of different takes on it, but I do think in the most sort of productive version of it, someone does need to self-identify and understand where their motivations are moving them and how they're moving them, you know? And so you can't have someone from outside you tell, tell you that really. That makes sense. Um, well, let's go ahead and move into our second segment on reading. Um, our piece that we're going to be talking about, well, sort of talking about and sort of using as a springboard for our discussion um, is a piece from the Gospel Coalition website uh, called Enneagram, The Road Back to You or to Somewhere Else. Uh, and it's by Kevin DeYoung. And it's actually a review um, of a book, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey of Self-Discovery by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, it was published by InterVarsity Press in 2016. Have either of you read the actual book that's being reviewed here? I have, yeah. yeah I have. have. have it's Ian Cron and Suzanne okay. Stabile, yeah. Okay, Cron, okay. Um, so you've read it. So, Carl, I'll be very interested to hear then um, your response to this review. I have not read it. Um, DeYoung, I'll just summarize his review here uh, briefly. DeYoung uh, decided to review this in part because uh, of the the publishing company here that it was put out by InterVarsity Press, so uh, an evangelical press, um, and um, and because it was well enough received that, um, that Stubiel actually ended up authoring a sequel, The Path Between Us, uh, an Enneagram Journey to Healthy Relationships, which was published two years later in 2018, also by InterVarsity Press. Um, that second book had not come out at the time of this review. This review is from 2018. So um, he's not reviewing that. He's just reviewing um, the, the first book, The Road Back to You. So um, in his review, DeYoung sort of goes through and lists sort of some pros and cons. And then at the end of the day where he comes down on the Enneagram um, which I thought would be a good springboard into our discussion of what we think are some of the potentials and some of the uh, sort of the potentials for, for utility and benefit and the potential pitfalls um, in dealing with the Enneagram. But uh, he did mention a few pros in the review. Uh, he liked that the focus um, is on not just who you are and you never need to change or improve yourself or do anything like that. There, there is a, a focus on a need to change. It's not just permission to be your true self regardless of how it affects other people, um, but instead is a, uh, a way to understand yourself so that you can strengthen where you need to be strengthened and, and uh, face your weaknesses and things like that. So we liked that. He also felt that it was a useful tool comparable to other useful personality tests or spiritual gifts inventories um, that, that have made the rounds at various leadership or team building exercises or churches uh, uh, on par with those. So he does mention those pros. And then he goes into uh, three cons that he that he is concerned about. Uh, some of which are not as actually con, I think, as as um, as I would expect, given their inclusion in the piece. But one is that he says it's not particularly revolutionary, kind of tedious and formulaic. And he thinks that the differences between the types tend to blur into sameness. The argument here is that it, that maybe it's kind of like reading your horoscope, where whatever you're reading it will sound like you because all of it is sort of vague universalisms anyway. So it's, you know, you have a struggle or you feel 
like you've been betrayed or, or something else that's fairly universal and therefore will be true no matter what your type is when you read about your type. Um, so that that's sort of his his first uh, first downside to or weakness of the Enneagram. The second one is that it sounds scientific but has no scientific basis um, which is an argument that's more explored more thoroughly in a recent piece actually in Christianity Today that we'll link in the show notes. Um, so I, I think some of these personality, other similar personality tools may also sound scientific. Some of them don't. Um, I guess maybe he thinks this one sounds more sciencey, so it's more of a problem that it's not actually grounded in um, in science. But that's his second con. And then the third one is the one that he's most concerned about, um, and that is... Uh, the Enneagram's approach to spirituality being at odds with or alien to scripture. He's concerned about the use of therape therapeutic language, uh, the place of the, or the idea of placing self at the center, uh, the central focus of your life. Um, hence the, the title, the road back to you. Um, the, the view of the fall that is present in the book is really more of falling away from self than any kind of falling away um, or, or separation from God. Um, from his, in his view, biblical self-knowledge would have more to do with knowing our own depravity and our need for a savior, not knowing um, our, our true inner self. Uh, so for DeYoung, the implication of the book seems to be that redemption and restoration is all about recovering your true self and that your true self is as it ought to be, lacking nothing. Um, and that the book is, is accessible to people of all faiths because there's nothing uniquely Christian about it um, in, in his view. So um, none of this, um, none of this necessarily directly addresses the utility of the Enneagram as a tool. Um, and then I wanted to include this quote from the end of the piece that I thought was sort of encapsulating his argument. If you want to scrap most of the Enneagram history, therapeutic baggage and Catholic mysticism, I suppose you could still have a personality tool that might open your eyes to a thing or two. But then I'd glean a few insights quietly and distance myself from the seminars, the experts, the books, the articles, and the nomenclature of the Enneagram. So, um, so that's sort of his his takeaway from it is that it, it has some limited uh, utility as a tool, but he has those three cons to it. Um, so, Carla, uh, since you've actually read the book being reviewed here, is that a fair? You don't necessarily, obviously you may not agree with his, his pros and cons, but do you feel like he's fairly represented the book at all? Or how, how do you feel about this review in light of having read the book yourself? All right. I, I do agree with it. I mean, I, I, I think that his summary is accurate. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with his points um, because I probably have a, a slightly different interpretation of scripture in the places that he pulls out, particularly where he's talking about sin. Um, but in terms of how he presents the book, yes, I think that he's accurate, that it does give the Enneagram um, a spiritual component without necessarily making it strictly Christian, that it does, um, I mean, it does, he, he writes in, um, at his first con where he talks about the book starts running together because basically the answer to all of the types is you're loved. You don't have to try to be loved. You are loved as you are. And he was like that if, if that's the answer for everybody, like, why are we trying to like suss why we're different? But I actually, actually disagree with that as a, as a con. Um, so, and that, and I think that that's true. I think that that is part of what the Enneagram is trying to say, that the messages that you've told yourself about why you're not safe in the world, because I think all of us are, 
using our motivations to try to gain safety, to try to gain belonging. And what he's what he's trying to say is that those things are already present. So you don't have to use your personality. You don't have to use your like um, shadow self is really where it comes to to get those things. They are already available to you. And so you are you are safe to explore as you are. Um, so that's present in the book, I would say. Um, definitely, there's a sense of um, your healing is going to come from a deeper self-knowing, a deeper engagement with how you are in the world. And that isn't a, about self-obsession to me. That is about actually gaining visibility of how you are in the world, <laughs> of how you're functioning in the world, what patterns you're using, what behaviors you've adapted and adopted to try to function and decide whether or not they're serving you and the people around you. Um, and so it is very much concerned with how you connect with the rest of the world and with, with your, in your relationships by having a deep sense of self-understanding, um, which, uh, again, like, we can get further into his interpretation of scripture and sin and, and the way that that um, is a juxtaposition to his, his understanding. But yes, that is what the book is trying to say. Okay. Katie, did you have anything you wanted to say uh, as far as a response to, um, to the review before we dive into our questions for today? Um, I, I don't want to say too much because I did, unlike Carlette, you know, I haven't had a chance to, to read the book. Um, but I do think that there were a few points that I, I actually really agreed with. One of the things that he said that I thought made sense to me based on what I read of the Enneagram is when he talked about what you guys mentioned before, where there, he mentioned specific places where you might see something very similar written in more than one type. Like, um, but there's, I mean, there's a lot more that's different. So I don't know that that's, you know, I don't think we can lean too heavily on that because uh, to, to be honest, we're all human. So I think there are so many things that we do share, you know, um, not more than are different, but, um, you know, it's not crazy to me that different types would have some similarities or would have um, similar triggers in different situations and things like that. Um, particularly if you think about what Carla said about, you know, this idea folded into Enneagram of dominant emotions or tendencies or whatever that kind of cross the boundaries of multiple types, then I could see where you would find similarities like that. Um, I do think um, I did like what he said um, and what, what Crone and Sable are saying about not just staying who you are, not just accepting yourself as you are, because I do think, I think that that's a fundamental Christian idea. Um, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, our goal shouldn't be to just love ourselves exactly as we are, um, because that's not what the Bible tells us to do, you know. Um, but I, I also think that DeYoung is right, that there's, um, for Christians, it's maybe, it's 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 not, um, I think, I, I don't know how I want to say this, because this is not how DeYoung says it, but I, I think that some of my Christian friends who are super into the Enneagram, they want to make it more Christian, explicitly Christian than it is. Um, cause like you said, Carla, it's, it's, it's kind of trafficking and not trafficking, but like it's using terms that are more spiritual than overtly Christian. But I think some Christians want to try to make it more explicitly Christian because they love it so much or because they think it's, it just resonates with them so much. Um, and I feel like those people are, are kind of not representing it exactly as it is. Um, and I do think that is another reason that I actually agree with DeYoung that if for Christians who are interested in it, that I don't know that it's a great idea to be, um, to make it the dominant way you talk about your faith. 
I'll say it that way. I've, I've, I've had people I know on Facebook or other places talking about their type and, and talking about, well, because I'm type six, um, this is how I sin or this is my dominant mode of sinning or they'll want to kind of define sin in a very specific way that's that's not unique to them, but is is endemic for their type or and I, I think we need to be really careful with stuff like that, because if you can if, if you're because in, in the very real way, sin is sin, you know, um, Jesus didn't die to cover ones, two, threes, four, five, six, seven, eights and nines. Right. He died to cover everyone. And because we're all human and so we're all subject to sin. And so to 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 get too into the weeds of, well, sin is specific to the types or, you know, uh, specific temptations or specific to certain types or, you know, I think that that's taking it a little bit too far. Um, And maybe I think that's seeing your faith through the Enneagram rather than seeing the Enneagram through the lens of Christ, if that makes sense. Anyway, that's that's what's in my head. Yeah, it does make sense. And I think that's really useful. That was kind of similar to my response, even reading the review saying, you know, to his first con, look, if you think it's dumb or tedious, don't use it. But if somebody else doesn't find it dumb or tedious, then uh, that's to me not a con, you know, that you don't like it is not a con against somebody else um, using it. Yeah. Same if the, if the lack of scientific support bothers you. I mean, I remember one in at my church growing up that was like, are you a golden retriever or a beaver or a lion? I don't remember all of it. I about that all the time. Yeah. It's like your dad he actually brings that with Yeah. Yeah. Like the, that. Yeah. So those, those kinds of things I can't imagine. And I certainly never thought that there was a scientific basis for that, but it did serve its purpose or what your color is or, or whatever, or the, the Myers-Briggs that is even to some degree fallen out of favor because uh, personality scientists are saying, well, that's not how it works and, and all of that. But certainly many people have been helped by um, looking at what their their Myers-Briggs you know, type is. Um, so to me, again, the lack of scientific support, it's not something I, I don't expect a personality tool like this to be grounded in neurological science. So it doesn't bother me that it's not. Um, the, the final con I thought was, was the more, um, a, a more persuasive one, uh, sort of like what you said, Katie, that if, if, if you want to use it as a tool, use it as a tool, but, um, but don't substitute it for, um, for the gospel, right? It's not the gospel. Um, and, and I like the way you said that about not using, not viewing the gospel through, through Enneagram, but using the, the viewing the Enneagram through, through the gospel. Um, so believing what you believe and taking that to the Enneagram and not taking the Enneagram and then trying to, to use it to shape your, your beliefs. Um, so I thought that was, that was sort of similar to my, my view. Um, so what I really wanted to talk about today and the, 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 the young review was sort of just a, um, an entry point to that is, is the Enneagram particularly as a, as a cultural phenomenon. And certainly it's been my experience that it's, it's been popular for a few years, but it feels like it's kicked up um, of late. And in my experience, um, I feel like I, I hear about it everywhere. I think I hear about it um, disproportionately among people who, um, who are in the church. So disproportionately among Christians. Um, and I think disproportionately also among women and as I discovered over the Christmas break, uh, there's an age component, too, because I asked my mom about it and she was like, the what now? Um, so uh, she had no no concept of that. And she is somewhat active on social media, goes to church with people who are different ages, and she just had never even heard of it. So uh, is that consistent for you guys? Are you also seeing that the the age, faith and gender uh, parts of that being disproportionate when it comes to Enneagram enthusiasm? I, I think it, it's worth jumping in here to say I think that 
um, we need to be clear about what Andrew de Young is saying is that that it's not an event it's not aligned with evangelical interpretations of scripture um, and and maybe so I, I guess I feel like I would like to make that point that like he he has a very particular interpretation of scripture that calls sin a particular thing that that sees atonement a certain way that sees redemption a certain way and so what he's critiquing about the Enneagram is very much from an evangelical perspective, not necessarily a broadly Christian perspective. So I think that's worth saying. Um, and I, I, I do think that it seems um, disproportionately popular with people of faith. What has been interesting to me is sort of my post-faith work, <laughs> getting to interact with it in wholly secular environments and getting to see how it um, has it meets people in sort of a motivational slash soul space even when it's not in a religious context. Um, but yes, my experience with it um, was wholly in, in post or progressive evangelical circles. Um, and I, really the way that Stabile and Crone write about it and the resonance in like spiritual terms more so than um, like sin t- tones, that kind of thing actually is quite uh, central to the way that, that progressive evangelicals and post evangelicals do see their faith. Um, so it is really resonant with what's happening in that space in Christianity. Um, my experience in terms of gender, again, because I was in a space working primarily with faith leaders, and these are post-evangelical faith leaders, just so happens, you know, that most of them are still men, even if they hold doctrinal positions that say women can be in positions of leadership because of the space that they came out of, the psychology that they carry with them. Um, most of the, the faith leaders in that world are still men. And so I actually had a disproportionately... Um, Mass male experience with the Enneagram, where most of the people with whom I was talking about it were men, um, and there were women who talked about it as well, but it, it wasn't disproportionately uh, popular with women in the circles um, that I interacted with it in. Definitely, I'm, I'm with you on the age category, for sure. <laughs> I don't think that my parents would have any idea what I was talking about. So, Katie, what about you? Um start where Carla finished, which is to say my, my mom knows about the Enneagram, but that's because we told her about it. <laughs> so I think that still fits with your, your kind of age range. But my mom loves that stuff, though. Anytime we um, we told her we took a new personality test, she always wants to take it. Um, we all think that's very fun. We're an entire family of extroverts. So we love to talk about people and how they get along and how we get along and what we've been doing. <laughs> so um, I uh, yeah, I, I think I, I do see it pretty much exclusively with women just thinking about people who talked about it. I mean it was a female friend who gave me the book about it in the first place you know um and I think that I think there is an age component I do um I do think that I I, I see what Carla's saying too though because I've seen people talk about it not just in the church but I think I don't know, at least in my experience even outside of the church it's still fairly female fairly young um but I haven't heard hardly anybody talk about it at my church, but that, I don't know what that means. Like, you know, I, I don't know that that's it could just be that it hasn't caught on yet, you know, um, at our church in Texas. But uh, it's not something that um, and I also I don't know if this is the right way to say it or not. But I also think that the degree to which you've heard of the Enneagram is the degree to which you're like maybe noticing or involved with things like Instagram. And maybe that's a misperception, but I think that's where I've kind of noticed it the most is or people who talk about it the most or um i think um I, I'm, I'm much more likely to see somebody sharing some kind of social media post that they got off instagram about it or talking about it on facebook or something than i than i have been to ever hear anybody actually talk about it out loud to me 
Um, I don't know if it's that people who love to be online are more likely to want to take a personality test in the first place. I don't want to draw causations from correlations, but it is something that I think I've noticed more in friends who are very active online or very active in social media. They, those women in my life have been more likely to mention it than, you know, ladies I just know at church and talk to on Sundays. That makes sense. I mean, I think regardless of sort of what the the root appeal is to it, if, if it's something of a cultural phenomenon um, that is largely being talked about in those spaces, people who spend their time, spend more time in those spaces are, are more likely to have been exposed to it. Um, and then, of course, you hear someone talking about that and then you wonder what that is or you, you want to take the test or, or what have you. Um, so I'm curious, ladies, given... Given your exposure to that, do you have any guesses as to why why it's so popular now, why it's popular with with the particular groups that it's been popular with in your experience? I know, Carly, your your experience with with pastors is is has been um, predominantly male. But um, but do you have any thoughts about why? What is it about the Enneagram that has seized the culture, maybe seized the church in a, in a particular stronger way or, or had any appeal to to other demographics? I think um, just to go back on that, to talk a little bit more about the idea of like um, post-evangelical doctrine and why it appeals there is that it actually it does allow for an idea of um, redemption, um, self-improvement, uh, even sin without without um, without pulling in ideas like total depravity or um that were that were for those for post progressive even for post or progressive evangelicals depending on how they identify um those uh ideologies of sin were particularly traumatic or painful or or something that they've desired to leave behind and so i do think that what the enneagram seems to present to them is an idea of understanding what what hurts what's not what's not working, what needs to be improved or needs to be fixed without saying that your whole self is totally depraved and there is nothing in you that's worth, that's, that's uh, savable until you've been covered by the blood of God, of, of Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, so that, that it allows for a participation in healing, in redemption, in all of that, that doesn't do away with God's part in that, but does empower participation, if that makes sense. So that to me is why it's been popular in the circles that, that I've been in, which is slightly different from, I think, what you all are are um, discussing. And I, I think that, um, I do think that, and I know I've kind of harped on this, but I do think that the way that it tries to get beneath the behavior to the motivation actually uh and perhaps that's why it's particular with with some women, um, with women as a demographic, um, because it's actually trying to get to the root or to the spirit of the issue rather than just looking at the surface of the issue. And I think that um, it, it digs really deep into um, why you do what you do and how you could actually not just change your behavior, but but heal heal your internal pain and motivations so that those behaviors become unnecessary. Katie, is your exposure primarily in more evangelical circles? Um, yeah, I would say so, though. That's that's a hard one to identify because since I've noticed a lot more in friends that I only interact with online, not friends who are like right up next to me at church, I can't speak for the personal theology of every one of those. Sure. People. 
But I definitely have noticed it a lot more in my Christian friends of various stripes than in, with any secular friends um, that I have. And I, I would say that I've, I've noticed it more with friends who are more on the conservative end of, of theology. Um, so it is kind of interesting. It's, and and that, that's really interesting to me that it, it, it does have such an appeal in that area because it is something that often sounds more spiritual than religious. And so you, it's just interesting to me because you might expect someone at way, you know, over more on the conservative side in terms of theology to, to go, um, this feels, you know, I don't know, like this doesn't feel like it's, um, like it fits with my personal theology. This sounds a little bit too squishy or this, you know, this sounds more, more vaguely spiritual than religious. So I'm going to opt out, but instead it's almost like there's this interest. And I think maybe part of that is that, like what Carla said, there's this interest in motivations and in kind of putting some um, putting some more specific flesh maybe on the bones of, of some theologies. Um, you know, it, it, the, a book on the Enneagram can go into much more detail about how sin affects our personalities than we're going to get from reading some of the most famous scripture passages about what sin is, because that wasn't what, you know, Paul was trying to do. Right. He wasn't you know, going to talk about different types of people. So anytime I think that we can see an amplification of something that we've been taught in the church or, you know, uh, something that feels like a personalization of uh, sin or a, a way of talking about faith or of spirituality or of ourselves that feels more specific to us. I mean, that's you know, people are always talking about that's why churches are always chasing relevance, trying to be relevant. Um, you know, everyone is going to pay more attention or everyone kind of resonates more with what they're hearing if they feel like it's more personalized. Um, and this kind of the Enneagram and other kind of personality tests are all that it's that's what it's all about. It's all about figuring out yourself and it's all about that personalization. And so I do think that that's one of the big draws. The other reason I think and I don't know, it's really interesting, Carla, to hear you say that you mostly had talked to men about it, because if you'd asked me before hearing that, because I've only known women who've been super into it, I might have said that, and this, and I, I hate to say it this way because it sounds stereotypy, but I, I, I might have hypothesized that women are more drawn to it because in my experience, generally speaking, not all men, not all women, in my experience, women tend to be more interested in just sitting around and talking about who am I and, or who are we and how do we interact with each other and how can we be better at relationships and things like that. Um, but that could just be because the, the men in my life aren't <laughs> always down to sit down and talk about Enneagram types. Um, so that's, I was really interested to hear you say that, um, that you'd had a lot more experience talking to guys about it. I would be, it would be really interesting to talk to a guy about, you know, different Enneagram types just because I had, I haven't really had a conversation like that. And I wonder what it would be like because I've only really talked to women about it. I know some of the different, um, I've done, the, listened to a few different episodes of different podcasts that have talked about, um, the Enneagram more. And I'm always a little taken uh, by surprise when they will have a male guest come on to talk about their type. So I know, um, and Carly, you mentioned this and I'd actually heard it before, but is it, is it called the sleep at last podcast? Sleeping is at that last. the one? Sleeping, huh? at sleeping, sleeping at last, at last. Mm -hmm. sleeping at last. Um, uh, the, where the, the podcast host, uh, writes a song for each, um, from the perspective of each type. Um, and so of course he, he's a, he's a man and he's, he's writing these songs. And then also, um, 
Annie, Annie F. Downs, that's, I think that's her name, um, her podcast they went through and did an Ennia Summer and interviewed people from the different types. And so they had some of the guests were male. So um, if you're if you're looking for even just some of the different podcast options that are out there, you can at least hear men talking about their perspective as people who know about and have experience thinking about the Enneagram. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this because I was, it feels to me like the the cultural momentum behind the Enneagram is more than it, than it was behind say Myers-Briggs. Although of course Myers-Briggs was also very big for a while. Um, and, and is it, is it appealing to us for the same reasons that Myers-Briggs is the sort of idea of wanting to be known or wanting to feel understood, um, reading about ourselves. Um, but then thinking and listening to what you said, Carla, and, and even thinking about, uh, the, the parts that DeYoung likes about, um, about the Enneagram, it seems like it's maybe all of the best of sort of personality types and the knowing yourself and feeling understood it in, um, in concert with uh, an approach that focuses on relation relating to others, right? Cause they're all the nine types and how they relate to others and, and, and things like that. So those relationships and also it, it sort of dovetails nicely with, with a Christian understanding of uh, sanctification, whether that's maybe from a progressive perspective or an evangelical perspective, that idea of of knowing that you are not as you ought to be um, in your entirety, like you're not you're not you have not arrived at a full you know full full realization of what you were created to be, and you want to and you want to improve in the areas that you need to improve. So I don't remember those being specific pieces of Myers Briggs. Like I don't remember it talking about how how to best love and serve your neighbor who is a different Myers-Briggs type um, or, or how to improve yourself as a particular Myers-Briggs type. Like it, it really was more in my limited memory of an exposure to it of a label. Like you slap this label on, this is what you are like and you can go and read about that. Um, and you could read about other types too, but it was primarily a like a static thing of like, this is how you are. Whereas the Enneagram, it sounds like is not static. It's not designed to be static. It's designed to be, be moving both toward other people and understanding them and responding to them and also moving yourself toward a, a, they, a lot of times they seem to use the word healthy, like towards a healthy place as a healthy, whatever your type is. Does that, does that sound fair? The idea of, of identification and knowledge with sanctification and relationship, maybe being part of what appeals to our current culture and to the church specifically. Yeah, I think that's super well said um, that it actually like like you said, because I, I also love Myers-Briggs. I just find this stuff interesting <laughs> regardless of its purpose. But I do think that other personality types are just trying to kind of show you here's a thing. Here's a thing about you, um, but not necessarily showing you how um, how that thing was built, how it's impacting your relationships, how it can be uh, better understood to help you live your life in a more relational and uh, connected kind of way. Um, so I do think the sort of possibilities for self-improvement in the Enneagram are on trend generally across the board. And then in Christianity, like you said, I think sanctification is a good word to use for that. Um, um, so yeah, I, I absolutely agree with what you're proposing. I do think, um, Alexis, I think you're right about the Myers-Briggs. The one thing it does remind me of, though, and in, in the, the Enneagram is kind of concerned with um, interaction and how to kind of love people best based on their type, does actually remind me a little bit of the five love languages, though. I with, Just with the idea of knowing what someone's kind of, um, what their personality is like and um, as important 
so that you can love them better in the way they need to be loved. That is something that hadn't occurred to me till just now. But I do think that that's something that's happening in the Enneagram. It's almost like it's combining that idea um, in some ways with the idea of knowing yourself. And so I like what you said about static and dynamic. I think that's a really good um, encapsulation of that, that those two ideas. I actually was going to explicitly mention the five love languages because I think there's one of the criticisms against the Enneagram that you, you see, and it, it's mentioned more explicitly in the Christianity Today uh, post or article that we'll, we'll put in the show link, show notes. But um, in that in that particular article, they open with two anecdotes. One is a, a couple about to be married and the Enneagram for them is a wonderful tool for them to be laying a good foundation for their marriage and how to know and love one another well. And then this other couple where the use of the Enneagram the, the wife blames it for her husband's de- decision to, to, to leave the marriage and to say, well, I, I need to be fulfilled in my type. And that means away from you, essentially. Um, and I don't know the details of those relationships or, or the merit of those depictions, but it reminded me of a criticism that I've seen. And it might even have been from DeYoung or someone in that in that space uh, of the five love languages and saying that if you read the five love languages and you walk away um, you could walk away from that and say, this is my love language. This is how you love me. I will not listen to any other attempts to show me love except for my love language. Thank you and goodbye. I demand that you all use this, which is not the way that that was in my dim recollection of having read it ages ago, how it was intended to be used. Instead, it was, hey, like a language, right? Now you can understand what other people are saying to you. You can translate their messages of love, even if it's not in your language. And you know how to speak to them in a way that they will understand, even if it's not your love language. And yeah, it helps. You can talk to your uh, to your spouse about what makes you feel loved and how it really makes a difference if they do X or Y or Z. But at the end of the day, that the point of it wasn't to stand there and demand, this is how you will relate to me because of who I am, um, but instead a way to understand and to serve others. And so, yeah, if you're going to read the love lang- five love languages and decide to be a jerk, then it's not going to be a good tool for you. And if you're going to take the Enneagram and you're going to say, I'm going to read this and I'm going to be a jerk about it, um, it's not going to be a good tool either. But that's not necessarily a fair indictment of the tool so much as the tool who's using the tool, if that makes sense. <laughs> That was fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it is. I love that. And and that's so true. I I think you're absolutely right, Alexis. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit, but let's let's talk a little bit more. Are there other specific points of potential that you see in the Enneagram? Strengths that it has, ways that it can uh, serve us well and, and be something that has utility in our lives? I, I mean, I, I'll just I feel like I'm getting reiterative here, but I, I think that when I think about how personality can function, especially uh, something we're unconscious of, it's almost like it's just like setting I, I like am motioning with my hands and putting them right against my eyes. Like it's it's um, so close to us that we can't see it. And yet everything we're looking at is filtered through it. You know what I mean? And what I feel like the Enneagram tries to do is to pry it just a foot away from our faces so that we can actually gain some visibility of the shape of it and how it's working. And that way, with that amount of observational distance, we gain observational power to be choiceful about it um, and to decide how we want that personality to to work. Um, and that doesn't mean that we need to throw our personalities out. Right. I, I, I think that the assertion and it's an interesting assertion if you go right down to it. But the idea in the Enneagram that you are born with a personality implies something about soul. It implies something about um, uh, 
design, it implies a lot of things. And it's an interesting thing for the Enneagram to hold at its core. And so I think that um, the idea that we could undo that, right? Some people look at the Enneagram and think, oh, now I know all the bad things about myself. I just need to undo my personality, you know? And I and I think that that's a misuse of it because I, I think that your personality is, you know, if you think about the body of Christ metaphor, um, I sometimes see the Enneagram circle as a similar metaphor that we're all part of the same unit, each of us doing our own function. So if you're put here as an eight, you're put here because you're a protector. You're not supposed to undo your protective impulses. You're supposed to understand your relationship with power and how sometimes you use, because you're so familiar with power and how it works because it's in you, sometimes you use it over someone or you use it to hurt someone. Or sometimes you're activated by power in a way that someone else wouldn't be. You know, if you're a four, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm supposed to shut down my creative impulses because I'm ashamed of them, right? It means that actually I need to work against my shame to add my voice to the rest of the voices because that's what I was put here to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so those kinds of, um, I think there's there are ways that it can be really, really useful um, and then ways that we can actually misuse it against each other in stereotyping and and against ourselves in trying to say oh actually now that i understand my personality i really want to get rid of it and and try to undo it rather than help it become stronger um and you were talking a little bit ago about the sort of flexibility of of the enneagram and there's one whole segment of enneagram that i actually really don't like <laughs> that i didn't cover in my primer and it is the levels of development they have um nine levels of development for each type that helps you kind of do your self-improvement. The top three are healthy, the middle three are average, the bottom three are unhealthy. And I just have always found that to be a super frustrating thing because I think we slide up and down on our levels of stress, on our levels of trauma regularly. And so to try to say somehow that if you're doing these things, you're, you're automatically healthy. I don't know. It just, it, that I really dislike the levels of development, but it is directly related to what you were talking about before um, about the Enneagram being a tool that that flexes with growth. Well, I think, too, one of the with with your with the discussion of growth and that that to me is the, the biggest potential here that I've not seen in other personality type um, tools is that that potential for growth and not just stagnation, identification and stagnation. Um, and to me, it reminds me of Susan Cain's book from I don't even know how many years it's been now, but her book Quiet, which is amazing and excellent, and I highly recommend it. Um, and that specifically is focusing on introversion, which I've done much more reading about than I've done about the Enneagram. And one of the things I love about it is that that book doesn't say you are an Enneagram, you, or you are, you're an Enneagram, I'm not even making sense, you are an introvert. And therefore, you never have to do anything extroverted. Go be an introvert and a pox on anyone who would ever expect you to do anything uncomfortable. Instead, in that book, she says, sometimes you have to be an extrovert for a while because of work or a social event or whatever. So here are some tools that you can use to function well in that in that environment, like whether it's building in quiet time before a big social event or giving yourself time to to uh, to recuperate after something that's taxing. Uh, but the idea is knowing yourself is not licensed to just indulge what's comfortable for you all the time, but it can enable you to be able to face what's uncomfortable in a, in a wiser way. Um, and I, and I love that. And, and she, she offers some practical solutions for that. And that's, that's what I think is so important is that no personality tool should encourage us to just cater to our own comfort because that is unbiblical. Um, we, we don't want to, 
We don't want to undermine the idea of loving our neighbor in a way that's sacrificial and sometimes uncomfortable. We, we know from the Bible that Christ loves us in a way that is sacrificial and uncomfortable. So I'm an introvert, but if one of my kids is more extroverted than I am, which is doesn't take a whole lot, like I don't get to just say, I'm never going anywhere and you can just be miserable, you extrovert, because I'm an introvert and I don't have to do what I don't want to do. I may need to be more extroverted or participate in some of those things as a way to love my child well. And I may ask my child, my child may not get to do everything he wants to do um, if he could just run amok um, and sort of uh, indulge all of his extrovert tendencies. But we, we want to learn to love one another well and sometimes sacrifice ourselves or be willing to be uncomfortable for one another um, for growth. And so I think I I really like... I like the idea of taking into account other people, that, that finding your personality, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, and you said this, Carla, too, about even finding your type. Not that people can tell you what you are, but that they can affirm to you, yes, we see that in you. Um, but even that we, we want to take into account other people and how we can serve them and how we relate to them because we aren't just a personality in, in a vacuum. Katie, did you have um, any particular points of potential or strength in the Enneagram that you wanted to mention? I know we're running short on time, but I do want to make sure we, we all get a chance to respond. I do. I, I, to me, the most helpful idea there is maybe the idea of uh, the, the idea in the Enneagram of parts of our personalities having been parts of our current personalities having been probably even unconsciously constructed by us as a way to, as protection. I think that's probably when I was reading through it, I think that's probably the most useful idea to me because I think we, there's a lot of talk I think now, and I think it's, if I'm going to be honest, I think it's very millennial about our authentic selves being our authentic selves and authenticity. And it's a huge thing. Um, and I think some people, you know, think of their current, the current version of themselves as their true authentic self. Um, and, you know, some t with some people that takes then takes the path like you were talking about Alexis of thinking I don't have to change anything about myself and that's one kind of taking it the wrong way but I also think that um, it's a mistake to think think of our current selves as our you know maybe truest self because so much of our personalities I, I think that's true what the Enneagram says that a lot of a lot of parts of our personalities we have built or constructed or made as a way to respond to things that have happened in the past or you know maybe not even always something traumatic but sometimes in opposition to um, to other people. One thing that really interests me a lot is the kind of psychology of birth order. And I think a lot of times within families, you know, you might be even more a certain way that you're naturally inclined to, to distinguish yourself from a sibling or to push back against, you know, um, another person in your family. Um, I, I, you know, it just makes me think of people who, you know, insist that they never want to be like their parent. You know, I'm never going to be like my dad or I'm, you know, I'm never going to be like this person or, you know, kind of and, and so consciously develop in certain ways in their personality to get away from that particular influence. So I think that's probably the most useful insight in the Enneagram is just its acknowledgement that often our current personalities are not, you know, they're not just, oh, I was born with this personality and then it stayed that way. That's, you know, but that it's it changes over time as a reaction to stimuli. That makes sense. Um, well, I know we're running short on time, so briefly I want to give us all a chance to share if we see a, a sort of a pitfall or a concern um, or a potential for abuse. And we've talked about this a little bit as we've gone along, but I wanted to give everybody just a chance briefly to to mention um, 
mention sort of that that weakness or that potential for for misuse before we move on to passing on. So, uh, Carla, did you have one? I think I'll just reiterate what I said before. I think that uh, stereotyping or or relying so heavily on the on the Enneagram, or like just saying this is my type, there's nothing I can do about it, and justifying sort of your way of being rather than using it for growth, I think are the two things that that seem um, to, as potential concerns to me. I think that there are there are ways to think about the Enneagram where you're not even one of the types. These are just different motivations that might show up in any one person at any given time. Um, so there are lots of different ways to think about it that can keep you from pigeonholing yourself or someone else, but I think that that's my biggest concern. Fair enough. Katie? Um, I'm not going to say too much here because I think I, I, I kind of said mine earlier. I think my biggest concern would just be um, people who are Christian who are super into the Enneagram, that there's a temptation um, to to see their entire spiritual life or their, you know, the whole of their sanctification or their holiness um, through the Enneagram rather than, you know, seeing it as another tool, um, you know, and so getting that flipped. Right. And putting the making the Enneagram, the major filter through which they see everything rather than a filter of the gospel or a filter of Christ. Yeah, and mine I think kind of relates to both of those. I would I would say my my concern is that any anything that places self at center is not going to work well for someone who is is a believer who believes that the center ought to be uh, God and Christ. Um, and so that if we if we try to put ourselves at the center of our worldview of our focus um, of our priorities and and have that self at the center, the center will not hold. Um, that's not what we're we're created to be worshiping uh, the eternal. Uh, and transcendent God, and so we want we want to to keep away from things that will um, that will place ourselves that that eternal temptation uh, to place ourselves at the center um, and to, to worship self. So I would say that as long as we're we're watching against that um, and and keeping keeping Christ the center um, and not self the center, and and with that um, making sure I, I like what you said earlier, Katie, about that that looking through. Um, Use, using our faith, faith as the lens through which we look at all things, and not allowing other not other things that are not our faith to to then shape uh, and alter um, our view our view of God. Um, but that's all really helpful. Um, all right, well, we are um, basically out of time, so let's go ahead and move on to passing on uh, the time when we make our recommendations to our listeners. Carla, what did you want to recommend? Yeah, I have two websites to recommend that are full of information. The one that I've used at my job recently is the integrative9.com. It's just integrative9.com. There's a really um, in-depth test on there. It does cost money, um, but but that is one of the most thorough tests that I've seen for the Enneagram, and it is um, a wholly secular perspective. It doesn't it doesn't have a faith perspective. Um, the Enneagraminstitute.com is sort of and it's just Enneagram Institute is the website, um, is just kind of the repository for all things R-H-E-T-I ready is is uh, one of the main Enneagram sort of um, strains or threads. And that's where you'll find all that. So Wonderful. Thank you. Um, my recommendation is a podcast episode um, from a podcast uh called Your Enneagram Coach, the podcast. So uh, one of the places that I had seen a test was a, a site called Your Enneagram Co- Coach, and she uh, self-identifies as a believer. I don't know anything about her her theological background or anything like that, but um, and she has an episode, um, I think it's her and her husband, anyway, it's a male and, and female um, host, and they go have, they have an episode called The Gospel Message for All Nine Types. Um, and, and which I is a sort of a, a piece of this that I find fascinating. And Carly, you kind of alluded to this, as did Katie. But that idea of 
what is what is Satan's lie that we believe that that Christ is the true answer for, um, given our personality? What is what is the vulnerable point? What is the message? Um, what is the specific application of you cannot be loved? What why? What is what is the reason behind that? What what is the good news of the gospel for that type? Um, what does Christ have to offer? Um, and it also even includes sort of what is our what is what does Christ have to offer to us now? And what is the the both the already and then the not yet? What is the thing that is that Christ offers to come that will address and satisfy that longing or that um, that that tender place in us? So I thought that was interesting. I don't necessarily I don't know how accurate their their answers are for sort of the Enneagram science of it. I don't know how accurate their depiction of the types is, um, but I, I thought it was an interesting exercise in in using using your faith well to try and think about the Enneagram. What is what is true about Christ, and why is that like why why is why is that appealing to my personality? What is what is that? And and focusing it back on the truth of Christ and the gospel um, as as the focal point. Katie, did you have a recommendation? I did. Um, mine isn't Enneagram related, but it is related to personality uh, quizzes or types. <laughs> um, so I recently discovered and actually I, I, I discovered this through reading Christina Bieber Lake's book, The Flourishing Teacher, because she talks about it in the book. Um, but uh, there is a book and I don't um, let me see when the book was published. There, it's a recent Gretchen Rubin book called The Four Tendencies. Um, the indispensable personality profiles that reveal how to make your life better and other people's lives better, too. It's a very long title. Um, but, uh, Gretchen Rubin is the one who wrote the happiness project a few years ago. Um, but she has written this, this book about, um, it's just four groups and she says up front, and I'm going to link to the, to the website on the website, you can buy the book or you can just do what I did, which is just to read a little bit and then take the quiz, <laughs> which is there too. Um, but this is a very specific, very targeted type of personality thing. Um, and she says on the website and in the book that this is purely a way to think about and identify how you respond to expectations. So it's not like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or something where it's trying to express the whole of your personality. It's purely a way to try to suss out how do I personally respond to when people put expectations on me. Um, and so the four different tendencies that people have when having expectation place, expectations placed on them are upholder, obliger, questioner, or rebel. Um, and I found it really interesting and really useful. Um, David and I both took the quiz. I was not at all surprised by my result, which is that I'm a questioner, um, surprising no one. Um, I was surprised by David's result, um, which, you know, I mean, we've been married for over a decade, but because um, it was his was obliger. And I don't necessarily tend to think of him that way. But, you know, in our conversations after, you know, he kind of was like, well, what about this? And and I realized that it that, that was right. Like, I think um, it's an interesting because I think a lot of times we don't necessarily think that specifically about even our loved ones. Like, how does how does my husband respond to you know, people putting expectations on him. I think about the expectations I have for him, but I don't necessarily see him interact with everyone else at work or um, at church or, or know what he does in other situations where there are expectations placed. It's a very quick little quiz. I think it's got like 10 questions. Um, and uh, Christina talked about it in her book and I, it made me interested enough that I wanted to find out too. And her, in her book, the context was she was talking about how one reason she thinks her writing group that she's in with other professors works so well is that they have a very, a varied mix of people with these different tendencies. Um, and she says she thinks that helps them to help keep each other on track with their writing, that they're not all rebels or all, you know, obligers or whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, so if you're interested in, in, um, in 
personality quizzes in general or in things like that, um, I would recommend at the very least taking the quiz. Um, and if you're really into it, you could always buy the book, I guess. So that's Gretchen Rubin's The Four Tendencies. All right. Thank you. That sounds like a really I'm totally going to go check that out. Um, so thank you, Katie, for that recommendation. Uh, and with that, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Carla Godwin and Katie Grubbs, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Aldous Huxley's dystopian classic, A Brave New World. Until then, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.